Hello and welcome to Off the Record. Zach and I taped this episode about a month ago, um, and we were saving it so that we would have something to air if one of us couldn't do an episode one week. Some of the timeline may not be right, but I think this is one of our best episodes, and it's all about the correlations and what we've seen in our favorite albums of all time. So I hope you enjoy it as much as us. It's a little longer than usual, but I think it will be worth it for you. Enjoy. The idea for this episode came about a few years ago. Um, no, 10 years ago. I was making a record with the last band I was in, who's called Jet Brando, and we had about 40 songs laying around um, that we had recorded over the course of five years, and we were trying to figure out how we make the best full length possible out of it. And so I took a very pragmatic approach to how we did this. I said, let's write down all our favorite records and let's find correlations between them and let's figure out how we make a great record. And I think that's the thing is, is a lot of bands walk into making a great record without having done some research on it. I think that, you know, a lot of the time, you know, as a record producer, band comes in and we're like, well, we're going to do a 10-song full length and it's 70 minutes. I'm like, why? Like, what record that you like is like that? And I think it's really important for whether you're a music fan or you're a musician to know that, you know, uh, there's some a lot of thought put into making an amazing record. And some happen by accident, but um, you should know what you like at a record. So Zach and I both wrote down our 13 favorite records, and there was one shared between the two of us. Um, and we tried to find a bunch of correlations in our list of favorite records. Um, so we took a bunch of data. I hit Wikipedia really hard. And for the next hour, we're going to talk about what are the similarities in our favorite records. And I should also say our favorite punk records, because um, for the sake of discussion, we left off some of the records that aren't punk that are our favorite records. Um, I obviously had some ridiculous dance records. Zach had some mainstream pop piano records that I find disgusting, too. <laughs> I hate Jack's mannequin, Jesus. <laughs> oh, that's my that's my favorite, but okay. Oh, God. <laughs> but, uh, so we, ha we figured out what is similar, despite... The uh, 15 years in age difference, there's a lot of similarities and um, there's a lot of dissimilarities. And we tried to see what we could extract from correlations in our music tastes of what really, really goes into making a great record. So, Zach, you want to read off the list of our favorite records? We should say this is not in any particular order. These are just our... Yeah, no order. Uh, I think the first ones I'm going to be reading off are Jesse's, and then they transcend into mine. It'll probably be pretty easy to tell where that break occurs. <laughs> um, and this will just take a few seconds. Uh, refused, Shape of Punk to Come, Say Anything, Is a Real Boy, Rancid, Let's Go, Jawbreaker, 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, Texas is the Reason, Do You Know Who You Are, Jimmy Eat World, Bleed American, Blood Brothers, Young Machetes, Waves, King of the Beach, Acceptance, Phantoms, Lifetime, New Jersey Best Dancers, Screeching Weasel, Anthem for a New Tomorrow, Fugazi, Red Machine, 
taking back red med red medicine oh i read that wrong thank you red medicine i know a lot about fugazi <laughs> taking <laughs> taking back sunday tell all your friends blink 182 untitled brand new the devil and god are raging inside me thursday war all the time armor for sleep what to do when you are dead mansions dig up the dead there's a theme here Boxcar Racer, Boxcar Racer, Balancing Composer, Separation, The Dangerous Summer, Reach for the Sun, Manchester Orchestra, I'm Like a Virgin, Losing a Child, Main Overboard, Real Talk, The Wonder Years, uh, Suburbia, I've Given You All, Now I'm Nothing, and Lydia, Assailant. And we should say that making a list like this is so troubling because music is so important to us. Like, you know, I realized after I made this list that I'd much rather have... Bikini Kill, Reject All American, and Death From Above 1979 on this list than some of the other records I named. But this is how it goes. You had Jack's Mannequin. I argued that that's not really a punk record. And so we you swapped in Thursday. So we're all the time. Um, it's not easy to do this, but I think it's a great sampling to just do this even though it's not perfect. Right. And, and so what's really enjoying to me is there are definitely, I like, I know what my five favorite albums are of all time, and those are like, I can name those in order. But then all these other ones <clears throat> I have listed, at least, they are just like my favorite albums. And they're, in that sense, I could have listed another 10, but to me, there are like my favorite albums. Like, if I needed to take five albums on a deserted island, like I would take five of these that I listed. And then these other ones are somewhere to me a mixture of like, changing my life music in the sense of like, I didn't know this kind of music was a thing and now I really love it or somewhere along the lines of like emotional stuff or whatever. Like there's so many different categories and subcategories that we could have dove into. Um, but I think we each picked a representative for our, like the desert islands. And then the, this is kind of who we are surrounded by music albums. I, I think that's a great way to put it. So, Let's get into some of the things we found in the correlations. There's no record over 60 minutes. Um, I used to feel like, and I know you drive now, even though you were a city kid. <laughs> I don't, I haven't had a car for seven years because um, I love you, New York. But there's no record over 60 minutes. But I always found when I was young that I had... After 35 minutes, I would want to put on another record. I found any record over 35 minutes just kind of drove me crazy. But then I look on here, and there's a lot of my favorite records, and I found this the first time I did it, that almost all of my favorite records, barring Lifetime New Jersey's Best Dancers and Screeching Weasel Anthem for a New Tomorrow, are the only two that are under 35 minutes. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, for me, when I was... Growing, it was. It took a while. Like as I started to get a little older, older. So let's say like seventeen or sixteen to eighteen or whatever. Like I didn't. I actually had trouble with shorter albums. Like I couldn't. So my favorite album, like Blink One Eighty Two or Devil and God, like those albums are fifty to fifty-five minutes. Same thing for some of the others I listed. They're all above forty minutes. Um, so when. There, there was a long period of time where I was trying very hard to get myself to like newer bands from like the Philadelphia scene. So let's say like a Tiger's Jar title fight. And I couldn't understand why the records were only 20 minutes or 25 minutes. Hmm. And I like, I just, I couldn't, I just couldn't grasp that. I'd listen to it and be over. And it's like, well, this isn't an EP though. It's a record. Why is it so short? And And, you know, it took me not that long, but it took me a little while to think about like, oh, well, 
not like back in the day, but like originally, like a lot of these records from a band like Lifetime, who, you know, Title Fight is hugely inspired from, like those records were also just 20 minutes. Um, and it took, that's interesting that we have a different point of view there, maybe because I started, my deep dive into this music started with a record that was 40 minutes. And then my dive into a whole, the other whole other world within this world with like the brand new kind of sound is 55 minutes. And I love every song in that record. And it's like, I don't hmm. feel it's too long or too short. I just feel like it's, I have no problem listening to the whole thing. I want to, I can't, I can't stop listening to it. If I start it for me, I can remember a thing like even when I first started working for a record label that, um, the legal length from for a full length, like in the contract, like which constituted that you handed in a, a full length was 21 minutes. And that was the big thing is that like the lifetime records like barely made it. And I think the first record that we'd always all reference back then was um Gorilla Biscuit Start Today, which is such a classic record. I'm so mad. Um I missed them last night at House of Fans, but I had to work. Um but like, you know, these short records and there's a big part of me as a record producer and somebody who's worked on 1,500 records in my life. I think there's a great thing to making a record that you don't have to hit skip and that you just have the bare minimum of great songs and you didn't put extra stuff on there. Just, you know, no one likes filler. Right. I think that there's something to that. It's like, oh, well, you made 20 minutes. Like, you know, I... I've never been really been a big fan of that Lydia Salience record, but you have that on here. And I was shocked. I never knew it because I've always heard bands come in and talk about how much they love that record, that it's, you know, seven songs in 21 minutes. And it's like, well, you know, you put the bare minimum on that you had that was good here. Yeah, and to me, yeah, for that, that's actually a good example for me with that record. Like, that's one of the, that's probably, the, that's the shortest record that I, like, know. And that I love, rather. Like, that is one of my favorite records. And... There was such a, when I first got it, I actually did struggle. I was like, why is this not longer? Because it was supposed to be the band's last record, actually. So hmm. I was like, oh, God, this is, one, this is a perfect way to, like, go out because this is just an incredible record. But two, I was like, why is this not double the length? But, you know, the more I grew with that record, it's like, oh, well, they said all they need to say. And it's like a very emotionally packed 20 minutes of, like, a concept, not a concept story, but, like, a story of the band breaking up, essentially. Huh. And so something like that, it's like, in context, if I think about it in context, not just that I wanted a longer album, like, it actually needed to just be this long or needed to be this short in a way, which is like, which is not something that we grasp as the listener necessarily, but like, the band wrote like seven songs, six of them with lyrics, and they all seem to be about a member that left the band, and then everything went downhill from there. And so it's like, Maybe there wasn't more, and if there wasn't more, I wouldn't want filler. Um, and so, like, I'm glad on that in retrospect, certainly. That's, that's really interesting. And But I think, like, you know, the, the, one of the other correlations we came up with is, like, you know, so 41 minutes is the average length of a record we like. So that's six minutes past when I feel like I usually get bored by a record. And the average is 12 songs. So Lydia was the shortest one at seven songs. And Rancid, Let's Go, uh, has 23 songs on it. It's funny because Rancid is one of those bands that's also notorious, even though they have the most amount of songs on this list. Um, they're notorious for writing uh, two records for every one they put out, and they just do B-sides or don't put out a bunch of songs. But they also have three songwriters, so that's a little easier. But it's kind of funny that like you think about it, like a band like that. They're like, okay, you know, we wrote 46 songs. 
here's the 23 best ones. Right. And meanwhile, it still only comes out to 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's the other nice thing about them is that they they're fast and they're short. And, you know, and, you know, the uh, other thing I would say about those guys is that, um, you know, they they learned a craftsmanship from working with like great producers. And I see it all the time. Um, with the records I produce, that the bands who make the best records are the ones who throw away the most material. Like, you got to get good at writing a lot of songs. Like, one of the things, um, there's this great Rick Rubin quote in that long Daily Beast article he did right after uh, Yeezus came out, where he says to every band, he's like, I want you to write um, two and a half albums for every one you put out. I think that that's a lot of what makes great records. Like, the great records I've been a part of, that's it, like, you know, one of the records on your list, uh, Man Overboard, Real Talk, you know, we had two albums worth of material. We had 40 songs to choose from, basically, on that record of which would go, what would go on it. I think that's some of uh, what made it great. Yeah, actually, it's interesting now, too. We Jesse and I also put together a, one of the category cells in the Excel doc we did was uh, the number record it was of the band's career. And I think when you factor it into what you were just saying about throwing a lot of material, if you look down our list, and all of this, by the way, will be in the uh, show notes section of when we post this episode. I will do my best to make a pretty, to prettily format everything for everyone at offtherecord.fm. But so if you factor in that uh, to be, you know, to make hopefully a really great album, like you need to be smart about your songwriting and you need to know what to choose and what to not choose, most of the records we picked are not the, al- the band's first record. Um, meaning, yeah, most of them are not. Yes, that's a good point. Especially your, there's a string of mine that are, but some of them are side projects or some meaning. Well, like, no, only one is a side project, just Boxcar Racer. Boxcar is a side project, uh, but so that would have been like Tom DeLonge's fifth written record, not their first, obviously. So categorically, I would say like a lot of these albums were written when not when an artist was necessarily in their prime, but they had experience writing and writing smartly and like writing well and we have producers listed as well and like you know a lot of them are good matchups i would say for for the songwriting yeah and so i think you're hitting on two things we should um really get verbose on 25 records eight were the first record and then eight our favorites were the third record which i thought was really interesting but four were number two two were number four and three were number five from the band an interesting thing, I think, with that is that the sophomore slump is real. You know, it's not often that your second record is your greatest record. But, man, like, number four is even worse, apparently. No one's making their best material after record number five. Like, we didn't have a single rec- record on here. Yeah, and I feel like that's for so many reasons. Like, especially in our world. So so, so you say so many so many reasons. What, what do you think well, those so re- reasons mind, are? in my mind, like, most of these bands are punk rooted bands whether they you know blow up and get popular like truly popular like a blink 182 or taking back sunday is one thing but then like so many of these bands like it's not like they're bringing in money which means for business on the business sense they may be breaking up eventually um so a lot of these bands haven't gotten never got to their fifth record um yes or sorry never got to their sixth record rather like or just touch that, like, brand new, four records in. It'll take another 10 years for them to get to their sixth record. Uh, <laughs> and we'll see, you know. But then again, like, Acceptance, that's one of your favorite records of all time. And because of business reasons, because the record leaked, they never even made it to their second record. You know, they couldn't even sophomore slump. 
So right. I, I think when you when you take in our world in not fully, but to to a brief extent, like a lot of these bands don't get the opportunity to make it there. Um, you know, that's either because they hate each other, because no one, everyone stopped liking them, or because you know, reason after reason. But if we were listing our, and I wouldn't be able to do this, but if we were listing our favorite like pop star albums, a lot of them make it to ten albums because they put something out every other year to sell a million copies or wh- whatever many copies it is now. But. Mm. It's interesting to me, and I, I, I think any band making it to five albums that are solid is kind of crazy. Like There are only a few bands in general that have a catalog that goes so deep all the way through. And you know those bands are like a Death Cab or like a Jimmy Eat World or, or whatever. It's a, very, it's a very slim list. But actually, now that I'm thinking about it more, wouldn't you say that it would almost be harder for one of a band's, let's say, five through eight albums to be... Our favorite because a lot, so much having to do with favorite albums, I think, is like an, an intangible emotional growth thing. Like, if I listen to Blink 182's Untitled for the first time now in 2014, I don't know what I would think of it, but I know when I started listening to it in the sixth grade, it completely changed my life. And that was their fifth album. You know what I mean? Like, that's a, that's a thing too. Who knows where we would be at any age if we heard these differently, of course. I, I think that, that that's a really good point. It's funny. I was uh, tweeting um, with Johnny Minardi last night, and mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about— I was like, you know, I never got into Owen, and I was saying, people, tell me which Owen album I should get into first. Because um, I love Mike Kinsella's work, and uh, I love all his other bands, but that's the one I never— really got into but uh i was saying like he's like you know this is what it was like emotionally and uh i was like yeah you know i didn't get into a lot of sad music because i've been so happy for so many years that i kind of skipped over the emo thing from basically like 19 to 36 and you know not to say i'm sad now but i have a sad part of me you know i had a breakup this year that was really hard so i've been listening to a little bit more sad music lately so much of this stuff is about you know, where you're at in your life. But an interesting part of uh, this album thing, too, is is that I think after a certain point, you're like, you know, I've heard this guy do the same things for too long, and it's just not emotionally hitting me. Like, I always say, and I'm not the biggest Radiohead fan, but I like Radiohead a lot. If Radiohead or Tom York makes the greatest record of their career uh, this year, I wouldn't care because I've heard his voice too much. I'm just like, all right, dude, I've heard you do that thing you do 9,000 too many times. But funny enough, Hail to the Thief, though, one of their later, uh, I think that's their third to last record, and maybe their sixth record, I want to say, or fifth. That's my favorite one. But like now I'm just like, all right, dude, I got the point. You do that thing you do, and I'm bored with it. Looking at our list, too, so I guess it's pretty easy to figure. Maybe it's the Waves one, but on this list of your favorites, is the Waves record the most recent release? That is one of your favorite records? Uh, for Punk, yes. But I should also say that there's... Uh, I did a disqualifier on my list since I work with bands that make my favorite records. I wouldn't allow myself to put bands that I've worked with. So my favorite recent Punk release would be any of the last three Menzingers records, but mm-hmm. I did their first two records so i can't put them on my list because i feel like there's an emotional thing of you know i love those guys they're some of my favorite people and i don't feel like it's right to put that on there 
That is fair. So for me, I guess the most recent thing that would have popped on my list was this Mansions record, or maybe it would mm-hmm. be be Mansions or the Wonder Years record. And so, but so at that age, so the Mansions, I would have been graduating high school, so 2011. It's curious to me, I think, just as I get older, to see if like all these records stay concrete for me because they. I'm curious to see how they age with me, both musically, but then also emotionally, and how. You know, no, I I have loved a lot of records in the last few years. A really good example, actually, would be like On the Impossible Pass by the Menzingers. That's probably my favorite album in the last three or four years. Um, probably, you know, like since this Mansions record or something. Um, but, and it is one of my favorite albums, but, but it hasn't like, I'm not taking that on a desert island with me kind of thing. I'm curious to see like how over time, and I bring this up because you have had 15 years of that time past my age, is just like, yeah. Like how an album when you were 27 might still break through to you like you felt like you were 13 again. And I guess a lot of that probably has to do like with some heavy emotional stuff that everyone goes through in different ways. But it's like it's curious for for me now, like I might love 10 albums a year, but I don't know that any of them are ever going to be my favorite album again um, compared to what I have on this list. Yeah. And I think that that, that's a big thing for me. Like when I was making this list is it's like, there's records I've really loved in the past year or two. And, you know, I will fully admit that I'm a little bit more uh, enthusiastic towards uh, podcasts and books on tape than I am uh, music these days. But like, you know, it needs to stand a a test of time for me. And, you know, like I, I, like I was saying, like, I was like totally mad at myself that, um, I left Bikini Kill Reject All American off my list. And, you know, um, that record came out in 1996 when I was a senior in high school. And last night I watched uh, The Internet's Own Boy, The Aaron Schwartz Story. And, uh, you know, I was very emotional. And the record I turn to when I'm emotional about someone dying is uh, Reject All American. And I put on... The song Rip, and uh, I cry my eyes out, and it's a really, really important thing to me. But, you know, some of the records, uh, you know, I, I do think that there's some records in recent history for me that uh, I will feel that same way about uh, in a little while. Like, you know, I think this, the 1975, while it's not a punk record, I think that that's one of the most important records of my life. Hmm. I didn't put it on this list because I don't think it's punk, but um, I know that 10 years from now, I'm still going to be listening to that record. Right. Yeah, that that's that I guess is where like that not line but whatever kind of gets drawn where it's like I love this record right now currently in 2014 am I looking to listen to that in 2024? Oh god, that'll be a long time. <laughs> so 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 something that occurred to me that we didn't put on this list though and I wish we did is do you listen to every song on these records like I don't I know okay. for me that like not every song on all these records, like, you know, Throw a Rock into the Machine on Refuse Shape to Punk to Come. I kind of think that's a terrible song that should have been left off the record. I think the intro on Texas is the reason Do You Know Who You Are is a stupid song. There's some of the last songs in Blood Brothers' Young Machetes that I just, like, they came on in a bar uh, that I was drinking. I'd go, who's this? Because, like, I just don't get that far into the record. You know, you have um, brand new The Devil and God on your list, and there's three songs on that list that are three of my favorite songs of all time. Like, you know, like uh, 
what is it, Jesus Christ and sowing season and like mm-hmm. we were kind of joking about this before the podcast is um, when that record came out, it was still in the days where my I, I would ration my hard disk space on my laptop. So I don't even have the full record ripped from when I b- put it on CD. So I don't even know most of that record because I was like, ah, I don't like a bunch of these songs. So I just won't put them on. And I don't want to waste hard disk space because I have so little of it. Whereas now. I ripped the stupidest records I've ever heard in my life. Does a record need to have all good songs for you to call it one of your favorite records? So that, I think that's a question, which is a great question. I think based on more of individual preference, like that's why I don't use Spotify how people use Spotify. Like some, hmm. like it gets into something like that. Like I don't make playlists. I oh, used really? To, oh, man. Yeah, and so I know I, you I'm a, are. I'm a playlist maniac. Right, so we're, we're different in that sense. And I think there are more people like you than there are like me. Um, so when I was younger, like with the stuff I was listening to, I could, I could hardly ever find more than three songs I liked. But if I liked three songs by a band, I'd consider myself liking that band. So this was when like, and it's kind of hard for me to remember some of this cause it was like, I don't know, fifth grade. Right. But like, if we're talking about me getting into the very early, early forms of pop punk, like someone gave me a good Charlotte CD, you know, something like that and, or simple plan, whatever, like that that kind of era and be like, well, I really only like three of those songs. I'll put good Charlotte and simple plans, three, each songs into a playlist and I'll listen to that. And then I'll move on to the next playlist of six other songs by two other bands. You see, you sit there and you're like, man, you know, girls don't like boys. Girls like cars and money. That, that lyric really fits home for me. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Fifth grade. I'm like, I feel you Benji Madden. But then, slow, very slowly, like, I, so I used to have all these crazy playlists, actually. I, and then when I, like, even then fell in love with, like, Blink-182 and Angels and Boxer and Plus 44, I would put all of those four bands in a playlist together. So I would make, like, a 300-song playlist, and I'd have it ordered. So it would start, and I still remember, I don't have these, play, oh, you know, maybe it's on my old iPod Classic. I should find that. But it would, you know, the playlist would start with, like, feeling this, and then a boxcar song and an Angels and Airways song and that's how it would start and then I'd have a playlist I haven't thought about this in so long I'd have a playlist with Taking Back Sunday and Brand New and uh, you know like 70 times 7 would be right above There's No I in Team stuff like that and I was so big on playlists but then I'm not sure where it turned but eventually it like definitely took a turn I don't I listen to everything all the way through now everything huh if, if I don't like an album all the way through, like I think if there are six songs, if there are 12 songs on an album and I only like four of them, I'm never, I'm like probably never really listening to those four songs. So I often make a playlist of an album I like and delete the songs I don't like on it. Like here's a perfect example. Waves King of the Beach. The version of it I listen to, I've deleted the three songs I don't like. Hmm. I'm also an efficiency maniac, and I'm like one of those people, you know, like I'm like, don't waste your time on anything but the greatest things in the world. So I find I definitely find what I do is different than most people, uh, for sure. Like even like someone like Thomas. Thomas makes like Thomas loves like mixtapes, right? Like he likes doing that. He likes making those things, but not on cassettes. He likes making playlists. You're saying right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in the, but in the feeling, if he, if he did that, I'd unfriend him. <laughs> but in the feeling of like a mixtape, you know. Um, and so for me, there, there, I had such a point with that for sure. I would never listen to an album. And then I think it was mm, 2009, 2010, maybe. I remember very much so like a conversation I had with my friend Emily. And she was like, oh, yeah. Like, she's like, why are you calling this a record? Like, I don't know anyone that calls it a record. And this was even before I was like into vinyl at all, really. These albums that I'm talking about, like, it was made as a record, as an album. It wasn't like a, 
back then it wasn't like a Lady Gaga song, you know? It wasn't like a single. And she was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And I, from then, that's probably like the first time that I can think of like, or I categorically was thinking of these like these albums that I loved as full pieces. So yeah, I will listen to Devil and God and I will listen to all 55 minutes and I will listen to you know, Lydia and listen to all 21 minutes. It doesn't I, I matter. I feel, feel so bad for you that when you listen to Blink-182 self-titled, you have to listen to that stupid Travis Barker interlude thing. Oh, it's I fine. I think that's one of, the, one of the worst songs I've ever heard in my life, even though... Oh. Uh, well, yo, and, and I, I will say this too, that, that record's one of... has some of my favorite songs of all time on it too. It, and, uh, and and so I can I can absolutely see you not liking that song or any other song, right? But to me, it's like... The whole that album to me has a feeling, and it wouldn't feel that whole way if you removed one of the songs from it, even if I don't love it as much as another one. And I don't, that's just how I think of these albums. Like, they are, you know, I'm, I'm not saying like they're a work of art, and yes, in their own way, <laughs> they are like a work of art in their own way, obviously. But to me, it's like there are certainly songs, and we can get into this next, where it's like uh, their concept or their collection, or they're all the way through, there's a meaning or not, but. You know, I I've probably listened to Untitled like five hundred times all the way through. God, who knows, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, to me, that is such a concrete thing. It would be like me forgetting how to walk briefly if I skipped the five, like five songs in the middle of the album. Like I wouldn't get it. Like to me, it's one cohesive thing at this point because of because I don't listen to them singly. I listen to them all together. So I would say Jawbreaker, Twenty Four Hour, Revenge Therapy. Uh, is the record I've listened to the second most in my life. The record I listened to the most was Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction because I was 12 years old when that came out. I wanted to be a cop growing up, and then I heard that record. <laughs> and I was like, nope, music, and that's even uh, the record that this turned was me a to normal, a record producer. If this was a normal episode, we would we would definitely be calling it I Wanted to Be a Cop When I Grew Up. God <laughs> damn. It, yeah, it's really funny. And then, you know, I saw the Sweet Child of Mine video. I was like, these guys are so cool. And since then, my life's been ruined. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the point I want to make, I've listened to that record uh, probably the second most in my life. It's one of the most important records. Like, I, I was a depressed teenager, and that record, like, you know, when people are like, this record saved my life, that's the closest thing I can say. I think that's cheesy to say that a record saved your life, but... It was the comforting record of my teenage depression. But the funny thing is, is as an adult, you know, I revisit that record all the time. It's the record I've listened to the second most of my life. I listen to about four songs on it now as a happy that's adult. That's crazy to me. Like, that's so, I can't fathom doing that. Like, I would never, like, to me, I would never want to listen to Untitled if I skipped any of those songs or any of these other records, like, I've I listed. Like, to me, it. I don't know, I'm just not, I can't think of it in that mindset. And I can see why you do. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so interesting that I think there are really just two two different types of people musically, consumer-wise. And like, there's one that's like, I'm just going to listen to what I want. And then there's the other that's like, got to do the full thing. And obviously there can be crossover, but I really feel like there's two different camps. Well, th that's like anything in life. There's people who are right, there's people who are wrong, and you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> totally kicked. I, I actually think that, your thing is way more no noble. But um, <laughs> to get off that tangent, I, I, I think we, we kind of skipped over some stuff that I think is really, uh, we should really talk about is that, um, so with this thing of like the first record being the uh, 
you know, mo- the first and the third are the most common that they're our favorite records. Everybody always says, you know, you have your whole life to write your first record, which is totally true. And that's why so many first records are there. I think there's also a thing of that the first time we hear somebody's like passionate voice is great. But I think there's even a thing. So I was texting with like one of my, one of the bands I've been working with lately who are seeing some success and like, it's so hard to ignore what people want from you. I have this theory and it's a lot of what my next book is about is that like, what makes good music and what I've seen over the 1500 records I've worked on is that like, uh, you make great music when you just emotionally react to it and you don't think about things. I think a lot of the time why we see a sophomore slump is that like a band sitting there and they're going, you know, everybody likes this, 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 let's try to please them. And it doesn't work out. You have to just emotionally react to music because no one wants to hear the music you think they want to hear. Everybody wants to hear just what you feel good about. And I think another reason that we saw like the third and the fifth record be popular is like somewhere around there, you get good at doing what you do. And like, you're not thinking about people and and what the reaction of the record is. And I think that that's a huge thing. And I see it so many times when we're creating records in the studio is that like, you got to just you know, it's so cheesy, like, but you got to be true to yourself and you got to just do what you want to hear. And, um, I think that there, there even is a thing of that, even like, you know, like, uh, we were talking about this on a previous episode is that like, I think Blink-22, uh, the self-titled or whatever you say that it's called, you know, untitled. Every time you say self-titled, I die a little faster. Oh, jeez. I think they were just being really true to themselves and they said, you know what? Like, we can't make another album of dog farts jokes and, like, we just got to make the music we love and they made an amazing record because of it. I think it didn't line up so much in the later records. On the flip side, though, what about... And so we talked... I think we talked about just you and I talking, like, when we taped our last episode, but... So then you take a band, like, Four Years Strong and this is... Uh And they, they wrote their best or they wrote their fan favorite record enemy of the world and it has a very specific so, sound. L- 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 let's be honest they wrote their best record which is enemy of the world yeah and it's a i i love that record like, same here that's one of my favorite pop punk records of all time i think it is a perfect pop punk record and in, in terms of like and it's so good and then they wrote another record and no one liked that record but so now here we are like four years after enemy of the world or yeah four years after enemy of the world and they're about to release this EP, and it sounds just like that, like Enemy of the World. And everyone, they can say they didn't, but everyone knows they made the record sound, the EP sound like that, because that's the sound everyone prefers. Uh, you know, things like uh, I, I think it's real. You, you know what? Like one of the things, and not to say that I'm not part of the music pundit class. This is one of the things that really pisses me off about the Twitterati music pundit or even political (laughs) pundit class. We make up a story about a record that we assume to be true because it makes so much sense to us. As somebody who's a music creator, who's sitting with the band, talking to them, staying up, getting drunk and hanging out and talking about the ideas behind the record, working with them for months beforehand, half the time when... The fucking Twitterati music pundit class is saying, this is what... Fucking total bullshit. It's nothing like what actually happened. 
my take on the four-year strong thing, if I put my best guess and I think it's stupid to guess, I think it's a stupid thing to waste your time on, is that, honestly, they tried to go pop with that last record, and this record is where they're being true to themselves. Okay. I, I, but I will say this, too, that I find conversations like these totally fucking useless. Oh, yeah, we never know. It's just us yeah. pandering to each other, pandering. Well, <laughs> it's it's us trying to understand something, which is a good, positive part of it. Like, we're we're all trying to understand what we like and what makes us happy in music, but, like, most of the time, it's so wrong. Like, you know, I don't want to betray any of the bands I've worked with, but, like, you know, there's so many times that I read somebody saying why a record was like this, and I just have to laugh because it's the total opposite of what we've done, and that's usually the case when you're reading what music writers think happened in a, a certain instance. It's just the the speculation is a fucking fool's game. That's fair. I want to talk a little bit about concept albums versus normal albums. So concept albums to me have sort of become like, they're not my favorite thing, but they are like when a, I think when a concept record is great, like you can almost not beat it to me. And that's to me. Um, we're, we're the opposite on this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so out of the records I picked, uh, three or four of them are concept records. Um, and, you know, that's a pretty solid chunk, I would I would say, compared to most releases. Um, well, and, and for me, it was two. Yeah. And I think even the concepts on those records are pretty not conceptual. They're not like uh, some dystopian future right, or right, songs right. about when what to do when you're dead. Right, yeah. And for me, if we're going to, like, push it to that length, like, there's Armor for Sleep, What to Do with your, what to do When You're Dead. That, that, that is, like, the ultimate concept record in my music catalog. And then beyond that, like, uh, Suburbia by The Wonder Years is very much a concept record, but less, but much less, like, I am putting myself in the shoes of someone else to, like, write this record and more, like, this is what's going on in my life. But it's a real concept and everything's intertwined. Um and then something like Man Overboard, as you can attest, like those are just songs they wrote. Um, but yeah, even other records that aren't necessarily concept records on my list, like Balance and Composer, Separation, like there's so many allusions to like, and in the abstract, this sounds kind of dumb, but there's so there's so many lyrics about like rain and trees and like there are parts that interplay with each other that are not necessarily a concept, but they all leverage each other and. Similar thing with, like, the Boxcar Racer record. Like, those are a collection of songs, certainly, but, you know, like, and political or not, like, a lot of it Tom wrote about, like, following 9-11. And so it's, like, stuff like that, like, loosely held, but at the same time, like, I tend to really like records that are very cohesive, if they can be, and I love when there's, like, callbacks if they're done well. And they're typically not, but to me, when they're done well, it's just like I I just eat that up. I love that as like that that hits me harder. If that makes sense. So we did two categories on this: is we did concept, and then we did diverse emotionally. And so for me, I think in general, concept records are really stupid. Mm-hmm. And usually, the concept is, you know, when I heard the Armor for Sleep, and I like Ben. I've known Ben for a long time, but you know, when I heard that concept, I was like, come on, son. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. And, you know, I even like songs on that record. I think Car Underwater is a great song. But, like, you know, um, we did this other category called Diverse Emotionally. And I think this is one of the things that bands really, really just don't think about. Um, 
I like a record that feels consistent all the way through. And one of the unifying things for me is like, you know, I can hit play on Texas is the reason. Do you know who you are? And so, like, for me, when that became my favorite record, it was like I had my heart broken for the first time. I was 19, and it was cold in winter, and I would listen to that record walking to college in New York City and just freezing my ass off and hating my life that I wasn't in my car. And, like, it all feels the same emotion. And, like, there's something so cool about, like, when a record feels consistent all the way through, you could just hit play. And like, I think taking back Sunday, tell all your friends is like that. Like, you know, you just feel like this betrayal and heartbreak. And like, you know, I run to 24 hour revenge therapy or that Texas, the reason record when I'm upset. Whereas like when I'm like having fun, I run to acceptance fandoms and New Jersey's best answers. Cause they feel the same. And I think a lot of times bands don't, they just go, well, here's the 12 songs we wrote instead of assembling a feeling. And I remember I did this record that I don't know how many of our listeners will know, but it was like a kind of like a classic pop punk record 10 years ago that like absolute punk ate up. It was called, uh, it's a band called Race the Sun. Uh, it was called The Rest of Our Lives is Tonight. Um, and we made that record and chose which songs would be on that record by just saying, we want to make a record that when it's the first day of summer, you roll your windows down and you turn this record up as loud as you've ever turned up a record in your life. And so because of that, we had written some ballads and we didn't put the ballads on the record. We just made songs that were just, let's rock. And so many people responded to that record. And I still get emails 10 years later, or like Reddit comments where people are like, that's one of my favorite, you know, summer party down records. I'm like, ah, that's exactly what we strive to make. And I think... A lot of bands don't think about that when they're making a record. Yeah, actually, that's something I'd like to talk to you more about, and that's something we can't really... I mean, we did put diverse emotionally, but like that's an intangible, I, I guess, would yes. be kind of the right word, right? And, and you said well, that... Because it's, about, it's subjective. It's about what you feel right. and music. Yeah. You know, there's so many times that you find out a song is about how much somebody hates George Bush, and you're like, oh, I thought that was about your girlfriend being an asshole. Right. And there's... <laughs> <laughs> and we and we talked. I think we talked about this a little bit in the sense, and I said like in the sense that like I don't know if I if I listen to Untitled for the first time when I'm 24 if it would feel the same. And you take a record like Taking Back Sunday, tell all your friends like, I mean you can say your own pro producer knowledgeable stuff, but like that obviously sounds really terrible compared to like Louder Now by them, right? Like it sounds awful. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, that's it, the worst it, it, sounding. It was, no, it was a notoriously bad, badly recorded record. Yeah, yeah. It's, and the, the producer even fucked with stuff without the band okaying it. Yeah, like let, there's let, so let, many let, 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 let me do a little defense here. Let's blame the engineers, not the producer. Okay. The producer was a different person on okay. that record. <laughs> um. So, but you take that record, right? And to me, that that is like that for me. That was like I'm 15. Everyone in my all boy school just wants to listen to 50 Cent, and they're calling me like fat and gay because I like Blink 182. And, you were fat? Oh yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Really? I talk about that so much, huh? I I must have missed those tweets. <laughs> And so, like, to me, that record is, like, it's, and, you know, like, girl stuff, too. It's, like, that record is just pure feeling. Like, there's an intangible feeling listening to those songs. They might not be the best written songs, and sometimes, you know, like, arguably, there are some really terrible Taking Back Sunday songs on that record. 
But, but no, that record's amazing. Straight but genius. Like, what straight, about like, straight through. like bike scene though, or like head club? Oh, like those no, are songs oh. I love though, but I don't think those are taking back Sunday's I, best I, I think compositionally, that's one of the greatest records. Like they were the band that proved you can never have too much melody. Like okay, I could. I mean, I could talk up for hours on that record alone. That's like we're gonna have a whole episode where we just talk. Tell all your that'd friends. That'd be great. There's so many chorus after chorus after chorus. It's just. Uh. <laughs> It's the best. It is, it is. So, but to me, that album, that's just like a pure feeling. Like, there's something that when I listen to that album, they captured a feeling and it's intangible. And same thing for like, to me, like, uh, like, it, but for me, like, uh, the Blink record isn't like it captured a feeling. That's just my favorite album of all time. Maybe that's because like the lyrics speak to me or whatever. But the- you, you, you don't find there. I feel like at the end of that record, there's like a couple songs like when once Stockholm Syndrome kicks in okay. onto the Robert Smith record. There's like this like anger and sadness yeah, thing that yeah, I really well, feel there's, emotionally. There's Stockholm Syndrome. There's a song Astenia, and then there's like I'm Lost Without You, and those all carry. And and same thing with the Roberts with uh, all of this. There is like a feeling. But the whole record isn't like that to me. Like feeling this is like that is that is Blink One Eighty Two. Feeling that if you have to really? pick one song that's, to describe Blink One Eighty Two, that's this. like the, that's the like song I hate them for. And that's fair. But that is it's trading vocals. It's about sex and like chorus after chorus. Like that is what Blink that that's what Blink One Eighty Two is to me. Hmm. But that doesn't necessarily feel like it's captured in a certain time. Versus like tell all your friends and it's like it doesn't matter what song. They just captured something in that room somehow, and I have no idea how they did it. And no one, like, I mean, I don't know. You can tell me, but, like, do you know that? Like, when you're making a record that has a feeling, like, can you tell? There's two aspects of this. I can say this for certain. I've never made a record where that uh, people liked where it was miserable making the record. Um, You're usually having fun. Like, you know, so, like, the other day I was doing uh, sub stuff, and it was, like, I had one of the best sessions of my life. It was, like, super, super fun. It was just, like, amazing. We're dying laughing. And it's, like, yeah, I think usually people really respond to that. But the second thing is, is I think that the studio is a very unself-aware environment. Mm. Here's a great example. When we were making the Somos record, I love those guys. They're great friends of mine. But I've made a lot of records where I've been like, man, I love this. This is gonna this should be huge. But I have learned the humility that a lot of time when I think that my tastes don't line up with the world and you don't know um what the world's gonna like. Um I don't think you know, and that's another reason I think you have to just emotionally respond and make decisions by how they make you feel. You listen to that music and you say, oh, that felt good and you do that. Whereas like you lay down that backing vocal harmony and it's like, ah, that doesn't feel as good. Even though I want there to be a harmony there, we have to feel that that didn't feel good and be honest with ourselves. I think that's a big thing. And no, I don't think you you know when something's going to work and something's not. To that point, I remember even like a thing of like... um, I think it was actually Fugazi End Hits, which was a really hard decision between Red Medicine and I. They thought everybody was going to hate that record. And that's, huh. you, for most people, I think that's uh, the fan favorite, actually. Like, you know, actually 13 songs and Repeater are the real fan favorites because those are the best-selling records of theirs. But most of the people I know, End Hits is their favorite record, and it was really hard for me to even choose between those two. Yeah, I don't know. The feeling thing to me is just such a 
because it's intangible, it's so hard to wrap your head around. But and and that again, like that, like that man, the mansion's record to me. I think it took you a few. I don't. I think you like it now, right? But it took you a while. I like that record. It's not anywhere near my favorite records, but like, um, great examples. The other day, it came on on shuffle. I've been shuffling my iTunes lately because I'm mm-hmm. reliving the nine, the early two thousands or something. Okay. Um, it came on and I, you know, immediately just went, nope, done shuffling. Let's hit play. This is the record I want to hear. I, this is what I'm feeling emotionally right now. And yeah, it's like a consistent record of just feels good. Um, <laughs> feels but terrible. It is, yes, <laughs> but you know, that's what I've been in. I, I've been into masochistic uh, feeling terrible lately. So, hey. you know, like I said earlier, I've been into the emo lately more than I ever have. Yeah. So it's just in, like that's. And, you know, we can derail and derail on that because we can't actually hammer any of that in, uh, you know. Yes. And so that's just such a interesting thing to me. Well, so let's, let, let's go in on something that is tangible. So I remember you, me, and Thomas got drinks, like, last winter or something, and there was something that you said that was, like, that, that always, uh, like, sticks with me. is like, uh, we were talking about producers, and you're like, I think it might have been Will Yip, and you're like, oh, he's the guy, like, the guy you go to right now, like... There's times when producers have a moment. Like, I can remember, you know, like, around the time of that Race the Sun record, it was just, like, that thing of, like, everybody's like, yeah, you're killing And Then Matt Squire came after me, and, like... There was a... there In my memory, there was a very strict, like, three years of McTurnan a few years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, you have the moment. Like, Steve Evitz, who, you know, one of my best friends and mentors, you know, he had, like, this long run where, like, he was the guy to go to. But here's the funny thing is in our list, there's only two producers, or I'm sorry, oh, three producers who have two records uh, on our list. Um, so, like, when it comes to producers, I always say this, and I talk about this a bunch in my book, is that, like, what makes a great record with the band is not going to the guy. It's finding a producer who fills in your blanks and knows how to do that thing that you're missing and understands your band. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a huge, huge thing. But, like, overall, you know, so the only three producers that are on this list twice are um, Jerry Finn and Steve Evitz and Sal Villanueva. God, I and had my, no idea that Sal did the Thursday record until right now. That's uh, that's funny, yeah. Wow. Uh, he, did, he did that in full collapse. Huh. Wow, um, it really was a case of engineers on Tell All Your Friends, huh? It really <laughs> was a case. I mean, you know, I can remember when that record came out and people would just... Absolute Punk was just a complaint form for that. Because War of the record. Time but sounds great. War of the Time sounds great. It's the same exact people making that record. Interesting. It's just them learning from the mistakes. And like, I, I, I think you and I got into this on um, the time I was on the Absolute Punk podcast with you. So for me, um, North Star is this thing loaded was the record that I got hell for, and which is kind of funny because. Uh, North Star and Taking Back Sunday were like BFF, and those records came out like I think within a month of each other. But I got hell for that because that record is an amazing record, and the production's not what it should be because we didn't have enough time to make it or enough budget. But I should have figured out how to make that happen, and, and I learned from that. And never again did I make a record where I was the weak link. But I think there's a really interesting thing here of like most of this list is all different producers, and it's who complimented that band and was the right thing. Like, I, you know, like, I think of a a great example is 
Aaron Sprinkle on that acceptance record. You know, you have this amazing singer. Aaron's just notorious for being the best producer of vocals. And, like, he's so good at, uh, you know, doing harmonies with the band. And then, like, you get, like, other things of just, like, I'm on your list. And, like, a perfect example is, like, I write harmonies. I'll tweak songs. I change things with the band. But I'm not, like, a uh, John Feldman where I rewrite a song. I never do that. Like, I'm not a songwriter. I think that there's an interesting thing that it's not really about going to the guy that makes a great record. It's about finding the person who's going to complement your style and doing some research of like, this person has a body of work that works well with what I do. Um, yeah, there, and are can few, give a good there are a few different things to me. Like, I think actually the Aaron Sprinkle one with acceptance is like a perfect example. Like, he, like to me, Aaron Sprinkle, when I know everything else he's done, to me, when I, then I put it in context of that record, it's like he must have been a member of that band like while they were making that record in the studio. It's just like he just yeah. feels like... He was. Yeah, and it's just like he was there. Like, I know. Like, I can't, I can't imagine who else would have done that to make that record sound like that. It had to be him. Yeah. Um, he, was the, he was the perfect, perfect choice. Right, and similarly with Brand New, like, I know that they have actually worked with other producers, but Mike Sapone, to me, like... Brand new guy. Same thing with Jerry Finn. And, and, and that's an interesting thing that we realized in this too is so, you know, when Brand New made that version of Devil and God that they didn't put out, they made it with Dennis Herring, who's on this list. And he would have been another producer that had too, but they didn't put out the version they did with them. He also did Waves King of the Beach and mm-hmm. lots of other great records. I think Dennis Herring's one of the best producers in the game. He consistently comes up on my list, but he doesn't come up on my list of uh, punk because. Uh, you know, a lot of the records he does are not punk, but I think he's the a, a king among men. And then, yeah, like, I think the biggest, the most important example of a producer to me would be like Jerry Finn, because he was oh. involved in every single Blink-182 record around and also so much other stuff. But to me, like he was, and the band members will all say, like he, when he died, like they lost, like they didn't know how to necessarily make their next record. And it took them three years because Jerry yeah. Best compliment I ever received in my life was when somebody said, I feel like you're ta- you're doing what Jerry Finn used to do with bands. I'd, I don't think that's even the least bit true because I'm not half the talent he was, but he was one of the greatest producers yeah, of all time. There, there are I'm shocked he's not on producers. my list. Yeah, there are just a few producers like that. And then like there's someone on a lesser popular level, but like I know what like a Paul Levitt record sounds like. Dangerous Summer, that yeah. sound fits really well. He's been recording with like Have Mercy and I can be like, oh, that's that's probably what that band needed. Like it's in, like you can you can tell certain things with certain producers. Like uh I try I try to I try so hard to not be that. <laughs> really? Oh uh, I you know my production philosophy is I try to make the record the band wants. Okay. I tell them when a band comes in, I tell them play me three records of every sound you like and I try to bring that together and make something unique for them because I don't want it to be a Jesse Cannon record. I want it to be this unique thing. I try to come up with a unique way to present every single band I work with that sounds like them, not like what I do with them. Now, will I say this, that I think like in general, you know, my guitars never have like a flat mid-range. Like, you know, I strive for some things and there's certain emotional things that just don't feel right to me if I make a record like, but you know, I, I mean, I'm also lucky enough. I work in so many different styles. Like a lot of people may know me for pop punk, but you know, I do more garage rock than I do punk, than I do uh, pop punk by far. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, there are a few producers on my list or in my brain of my like music libraries are like, yeah, like 
I think they were really important to that, or that sound was crafted with this producer. And then there, but then there's something like Real Talk by Man Overboard, and like, I don't know what went into that album. You do, but like to me, that to me, that's like that one's on my list because in it, there's a very interesting, like not interesting, but there was a very clear path in my musical life. Like when that came out, like I wasn't really excited by anything pop punk that was going on i was really like i was getting deeper and deeper into like a brand new manchester orchestra sort of direction like that that side of things and then i remember getting the advance of real talk and i and i put that on and you know i had liked the upsides like 2010 was a year for me where it's like oh my god all of a sudden i am thrown back into pop punk and it, it pushed me and now i'm still here right like to me like real talk like real talk not necessarily one of my favorite albums of all time, emotionally speaking, but it's like it is representative of where I am today, where like where the where property Zach is today, and now and because of that, everywhere else I am today. And like, if I had to pick like three albums that changed my life, not in like a this saved my life kind of way, but like positioned me where I am, right? And that that would be like the Blink record, the brand new record, and then probably like Real Talk, and they were all very stylistically life directionally changing for me and like there's so many different categories of things to include here's another one of the correlations we figured out so i should say this is so like there's only one record on our list that's self-produced and that's the uh, mansions record Mm -hmm. so one thing i would say is that you know not to be self-important but producers are pretty important to making a great record and all these bands recording themselves you lose an objectivity but i think with that objectivity loss, so you're talking about how you were alienated by pop punk, uh, or like you weren't as into pop punk until that happened. And I had a huge alienation period during the like MySpace neon pop punk thing. Is like I hated that male model bullshit scene, and um, it just felt very disingenuous to me. But there was a big trope in that scene that you had to get the outside songwriter to write with you. You know, you got to get, like, this guy is going to spruce up your songs. He's going to do all this stuff for you. And there's no record on our list that has outside songwriters. And I thought that was so interesting when I figured that out last night. Is it's all bands being genuine and not going for that, like, let's go make the cool pop hit and we're going to work with these guys because they're the guy who did it and all this stuff. I found that period to just suck. It was the worst period of music. And, uh... I think it was really interesting. It was like when that died and you got like the man overboard wonder years movement of bands, it was just more about like, let's do this genuine thing. To me, it was just honest. Like I felt the honesty, like, and not to bash someone like this really isn't to bash someone like all time low because I actually enjoy a lot of all time lows music, but like that that makes one of us, (laughs) but you know, they do write every record with someone and it is really glossy and it is like, there's a. I feel like there's more of a point to why they're writing the songs than the songs itself. And to me, like when I first heard, specifically, really when I first heard "Real Talk" and "Keep the uh, Keep This to Yourself," I was like, oh, like like I could relate to it on like an emotional level that I could have related to "Tell All Your Friends" when I first heard that. Like it, it felt different, and like it was very nice for me when stuff got like back to that basic level again like from the start from the ground up and that like as like meaning so like you know there aren't guest writers and it was just like you know we're figuring this out in our practice space or in our basement at my parents house kind of thing like and that's sometimes so that that's how you make that song sometimes it's just 
you'd have nowhere else to write it and no other way to write it. It's just natural. Yeah, and it's funny because with Man Overboard Real Talk, that was a very much a thing we were talking. We, we were talking about take uh, back someday, tell all your friends, you know, as a feeling of like one of the things we wanted to evoke with that record. I mean, we wanted that honesty. And it's funny because then after that, you know, they got outside songwriting help um, on subsequent records. But like, I, you know, there's part of me that I've really felt and I've seen this over the years in my work is that would I respond a lot of time when somebody else like that other cook comes into the kitchen, their melodic sense jumbles a record. It's even the same thing I try to do as a producer a lot of the time is that when a band's like, oh, you know, like I'll have an idea for a part. But what I try to do instead, like when I can hear a guitar lead in my head and I'm like, oh, this will make the song. What I do instead is I say to the band, you should do a guitar lead here and then see what they come up with. Because a lot of the time the song's going to feel better if it's their sense of melody than me polluting the waters with my sense of melody that, you know, listens to weird dance music all day. And I think that that's a big thing is that I think people haven't caught on to that trope yet that. There's something to when somebody brings in the outside force that feels a little plastic and it it just muddies the water to me. And I, I felt that way for almost a decade now. Yeah. So we talked about um, are there intros and do the songs have like a thing where they made it so they all flow into each other? I think this was another thing like the concept record right. thing of like – in a lot of cases, I find it kind of cheesy when the band finds a way to string all the songs together. And as much as that's fun to do in the studio, and boy, do I have a good time doing it, especially as a mastering engineer. There's something about, you know, just a collection of songs that you didn't go out of your way to, like, make some crazy musical idea flow into one another that really just feels way better than that. But we do have a, a, a good amount of records on our thing that uh have intros and have song segs like it looks like i have three and you have about the same uh, yeah i think it's two two oh three you know you you, you actually i have two you have three because uh, i counted the but but you know i, I don't think that that's necessary even though we do not seen that in the correlation i don't think that's necessarily about the i i almost more admire and respect a band who can do smooth transitions and make intros and do it how do you feel when you hear that stuff? There, so there's two different things. Like there's on tape, and then there, that also gets into like live too. Like it, it's to me like, and that's a that's a totally different conversation. But then when some of those bands can transition that into like the live show, that's that's another thing. But that I feel like gets a is part of how they do it on the record, maybe. But I don't. I'm not like a big intro guy. I am a big concept record guy, but I'm not necessarily like a big intro guy. And then when it comes to tying things together. Musically, that matters a lot less to me, I think. Like, I'm such a, when it comes down to enjoying music and songs and whatever, I am so much more invested in lyrics. And yeah, like, obviously, like, the music matters a whole bunch. If, whatever, if the lyrics to Untitled were over, like, a pop, pop stuff, like, I probably wouldn't like it, right? But, like, at the same time, the lyrics are so much more important to me. And so I, I might find the, the, I might find like pleasure from whatever Soupy dropping a lyric five songs after he dropped the lyric the first time versus a guitar part being the same. In fact, because I might not notice that as much either. Like it may like it may take me ten times to be like, 
oh god that's the same guitar part i didn't realize or that's like a transitional guitar part i didn't realize and the the thing actually in one case where i really love it is on the blink record where there's um all uh easy target and then all of this um which is a, the robert smith song where they it's just it's a different speed but it's the same exact chords transitioned and that's something like where i can really appreciate that because i think like those two songs specifically they're about the same person and the first song is like aggressive and the second song with robert smith is very sad and airy and like just sad um so i don't know to me i'll take i could i would probably leave it more than i'd take it but it's just really all i guess comes down to when it's done right and then there are different kind of intros like the intro to is a real boy by say anything like that's so that's not a real intro that's just max bemis like speaking into his thing and making a joke with like his dad or whatever right or whatever whoever and like to me like that is say anything like that's the kind of band say anything it's like because like max bemis is a freak and yes. that's great and to me that maybe, maybe, maybe should, we, should we say is was a freak. was a freak was a freak boy. seems pretty normal these days yeah, pretty normal so to me, though, like that's part of that record. Like Max Bemis, like starting it off like a freak is why him being a freak on that record is so great. But then there's something like the Boxcar Racer record where there's like an, a minute or so of like, not like lame piano-y stuff, but like it just takes a while for the first song to hit. And I could do without that. I'd be just fine. Agreed. I think that that's the big thing is that in, maybe what we with the great conclusion is, is intros don't matter that much and... I don't know that, you know, there's something to that if, unless it's amazing, maybe you should leave it off. I think that might, would be my uh, conclusion. Unless it really emotionally adds to it. I think so many people get really into that thing of like they're trying to show what an artist they are and make a cool intro. But you hit on something that I, I would actually like to expand upon that we didn't do in this too. You were talking a lot about lyrics. Do you read lyrics? Oh, yeah. Really? I so, like... So for me, like, like I, I am poster child for like, uh, like AOL status message or whatever, you know, like <laughs> away message. Like I was up into up until I got my first serious girlfriend because I was not allowed to do this anymore. I was poster child for like lyric on Facebook kind of thing. Oh, Zach, that was me, man. You're lucky that you only met me after this. But yeah, I love like lyrics are. I love like. That is, I love it. Like a band to me matters so much more or will not matter at all depending on their lyrics. Like I'm the same and like I can't, you know, so like when I'm mixing records, I have to turn off the vocal when I'm doing the instruments because I listen to the lyric too much and lyrics are so important. But I, I'm also a big one, like, you know, so like when I'm recording vocals, I work with the singer a lot to pronounce every word so somebody can hear the lyrics. And I only really like records that, have really well pronounced lyrics because um, I don't want to read them. I don't find that an, an enjoyable part of the process. I want to listen to them, think about them, and I'll like put a song on repeat and like, you know, really, really, really dig into the lyrics. Like, you know, man, I, I've really gone so deep on Rented World lately because um, I, you know, I love those guys' lyrics. Like, you know, like one of my favorite things on that first record was sitting and discussing the lyrics with those awesome dudes and uh i find that to be a thing but i don't want to read them um there's very few bands and it's usually for me the only bands i read the lyrics of are very political mm -hmm. so, to me like like to brand new like i've i love to call brand new like thinking man's emo yeah no i i, I think that devil and god has some of the greatest lyrics right. ever written in the history of music yeah, they're packed in like to me like 
And whether I want to read it or not, there's like, that's something where it's like, oh God, I just love that. And same, similarly to like tell all your friends, I don't need to read those lyrics, but I love tell all your friends because on cute without the E, there could be five core, that song could be broken up into five different songs based on like the verses and the choruses. And I love all of them. And it's like, to me, that's just so much that that's why I love it. I, yeah. I am so big on lyrics. <laughs> yeah. I'm big on it. But I, it's so when you read lyrics, are you reading while you're listening to a record? No, I won't like, I won't sit down with this album. And then like, if I'm listening on vinyl, I won't pull out the lyric sheet. And if I'm listening, cause I'm always listening to an album. I'm not like, I don't have like a separate tab up with stuff, but when it's like nine o'clock at night, and I've had like two glasses of wine and I'm sad and I'm listening to <laughs> whatever a hotel year song. And there's this miserable, there's this miserable thing. I will look that up and I will be like, wow. Yep. That's as sad as I thought it was. I will read it over a bunch of times and I'll listen. Maybe I'll repeat that song a bunch of times just because of that lyric while I'm just staring at it. And that'll be that, but not on like a, there's not a daily thing where I'm like looking at, a lyric you're, page. You're right. not consuming a record and like listening, reading along while he sings. Right. If, but however, like if this record is quickly becoming like one of my favorite records, let's say I may invest that time because it's probably, I'm probably becoming one of my favorite records because I want to be investing time in it because of how much it is meaning to me currently. Got you. So I, I, so I have two last points. I know we're getting a little long here. So I thought there was, while I wish I put Bikini Kill on, I just said, you know, the thing while he's doing it. But you had Lydia. They have a female singer, right? Uh, well, so they had so they had two different female band members, and they both provide. They weren't, like, main singers, but they both gotcha. provided. It was more of a melody thing almost. So Harmony. getting back to, you know, you and I are both uh, proud feminists. I think it's interesting that most of what we identify, like, you know, I wish I put Bikini Kill on, but most of what we identify is the male thing. And I think that that's hmm. an interesting testament to this and that's interesting too yeah I was listening to this podcast earlier today uh, with with Soupy on this podcast going off track and they were talking about the Warp Tour problem thing that had, had made it away and he was like I, I, I'm not going to do it justice so I actually won't go too into it but it, you know he, he explained this he was like just like well look like Warp Tour wouldn't run without the like three women that literally put the festival to get, together oh, yeah. behind Kevin and then on a baser level he was like the people, the fans of the music that are coming out to these shows also generally happen to be white males, and like it's just harder to. Is that the, is that really the case? Is because uh, uh, I always well, there are a lot merch, of girls certainly, but, but, but in merch sale, you know, when I would do analytics for bands I work with, it usually was pretty close to fifty fifty of like who's buying the merch. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's a good point. I just think that like, and I'm, I don't, I don't think I am barring. So I don't. Mm. Okay, so wait. <laughs> A lot of my favorite... One of my favorite things of this podcast is when you and I both have to sit and reassess what we've thought. So, I mean, this is like the key go-to, right? But Paramore are truly one of my favorite bands. Uh, Like, I love... Brand New Eyes is like a top 50 album to me. Their first album is... No one would consider that an emo album in today's emo revival. But to me, that is like one of my favorite emo albums of all time. Got you. But beyond that, someone like... I do listen to a lot of female driven or guest or not guest, but like uh, split band members, whether it's like a guy and a girl singer or something music. Like I think mm. we're seeing more of that now, actually like, you know, Tiger Straw is a great example, right? Like, yes. And I love Tiger Straw is one of my favorite n- younger bands. Um, but yeah, I don't, that's interesting that there's only, 
Did we say there's none or there's one? There's one. There's well, you one. had Lydia. Oh, and, you know, she isn't even you, on that release. That's a thing. Oh, is she not? This whole album, so, that whole album is about her leaving. So technically we have none on our list. Yeah. I wished I put Bikini Kill on because that would have come up, let's say, higher than the Screeching Weasel record or even the Waves or Acceptance records. That, you know, that's one of my favorite records of all time. But I do find it funny and interesting that, you know, it is a thing about relation and um, to... Emotion, and I do think men and women are different emotionally for the most part. So I, I am on that side, even though I don't know. I, the, the, there's part of me that wishes there that I identified more with that. But um, so the last thing, and then we'll let our dear listener go. Uh, I thought it was really funny you said earlier that you know before I started consuming vinyl and like how your record is because that wasn't an option for me. Like, you know, like there were so many records when I was growing up. One of my favorite record punk records of all time is this band, uh, Crimp Shrine. Never heard of them. So Crimp Shrine later had members that were in Pinhead Gunpowder, which was the Green Day side project. Okay, I do know that. That record was only on vinyl. And there were huh. so many seven inches that were, if you wanted to hear this song from your favorite band, that you had to buy the vinyl. Like, you know, one of my other favorite bands that I almost put on this list is uh, Plow United. Oh. And um, the only reason I didn't put them on the list is that while that was my favorite record growing up, I even called them my favorite band growing up, it has had no lasting value. I can't even listen to the records as an adult. It's just a little too emotionally not where I'm at. Right. And um, it's kind of immature uh, in my mind. But, uh, you know, they would put out tons and tons of seven inches, the same with Screeching Weasel, that there would be no digital CD version of these songs, and you had to buy that vinyl. I think it's so interesting that no one does that today. Yeah, that is, there's all, I, yeah, I can't think of anyone, actually, that does that. Yeah, like, there, there, there's no rarification, that's not a word. <laughs> there's, uh, I don't know the word, but uh, I know that's not one. There's no scarcity, maybe is the word, in that, no band keeps their music to that. And it was the bassist in um, my band, when, uh, one of the last bands I was in, was a band called uh, The Curse of Yakub. And uh, the bassist of that band, he does a thing like where he like intentionally keeps his music off the internet. And I find that to be very silly and ridiculous, and it's also why they're not popular, even though I think they make great music. But... There's part of me that thinks that's a good thing, that no one does that. But then there's part of me that's a little like, oh, well, that's sad. That was a part of culture that was really interesting, that you had to buy this vinyl if you wanted to hear this. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like such an interesting thing to me. It so sounds like something I'd really actually enjoy. But it's Is just... That, that you had to buy the vinyl? Well, well, not that I had to buy the vinyl, but just like... Yeah, like you, you got to sit through it all the way through. Like that appeals more to me as someone like that isn't putting a playlist together. You know, I guess we know the future of bad timing records. Yeah, <laughs> all J Tree too. Oh yes, I, 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 I forgot your two, your two headed dragon. That's just. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone for listening to Off the Record this week. Head to offtherecord.fm to check out show notes to leave us any feedback. Jesse can be found at Twitter at Jesse Cannon. I'm at Z Zarillo, and our podcast is at Off the Record FM. We'll be back next week.